Hi everyone and welcome to this latest episode of our Brexit and Beyond podcast from the UK in a changing Europe and I'm absolutely delighted that our guest this week is Robert Toombs who's Emeritus Professor of French History at the University of Cambridge. Welcome Robert. Well thanks very much for asking me at end. There are loads of things I want to talk to you about, and I hope that we get some time to talk about history uh, towards the end of this, Robert. But we're going to start with your book, which I have sitting here, which is of no use to anyone listening, but I am now waving your book about. And I can say, first and foremost, I recommend it because it's not your bog standard Brexit book because it manages to surprise you, which so much literature on Brexit doesn't do. And let me start at the beginning. And you start with this wonderful phrase that I want to dig into a little bit, that geography comes before history. And it seems to me that that, that sort of that theme goes through this book. And can you just elucidate a little bit what you mean by that? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a rather enigmatic and obvious phrase. I think I was thinking of, um, you know, the, the famous uh, French 19th century lecture, which is attributed to a number of people who start off by saying, L'Angleterre, messieurs, est une île. England, mm. gentlemen, is an island, as if that explains its whole history. And it just, you know, it sort of occurred to me partly that if you're brought up living on an island, there's a there's a, there's experience of living in a, on a continent that you can never really grasp. You know, living on an island, if, you, if you've been brought up on an island, seems normal. It just seems that that's how it is. But And therefore, it's, I think, rather hard for us, certainly hard for me, really to feel I grasp what it's like living in the middle of a continent when you're surrounded by other nations, other all part of the same landmass. And I often think of a, a quotation in a, in a book by uh, Norman Stone, the late Norman Stone, and whether mm-hmm. you, you knew him. And he, he quotes someone who was brought up in Poland in the interwar period, who says something like, we spoke uh, German at home, Polish at school, Yiddish at the dentist, and Ukrainian to the servants something like that. And I thought, you know, that kind of experience of a mixture of ethnicities and a mixture of a a, a sort of instability of national identity, of changing boundaries, of, you know, in in your lifetime, maybe changing your nationality several times. Okay, it's an obvious point, but it's one that we can never really feel. And, uh, And therefore, I was sort of thinking that in that sense, at least, an island nation is not does not have the same experience of being European as if you are Hungarian or Czech or Polish or, or even, even French. So that's, that's what was behind this very, okay. very simple and obvious phrase. I mean, I was struck when you were telling the Norman Stone story that you could say the same of most Indian families, actually. Yes. But, you know, plethora. but I, I, I mean, I buy that. I had a very strong recollection. I think the first time I went to Switzerland, you know, having been born and brought up in this country, the idea that you'd have road signs pointing you towards cities in different countries... Uh-huh. which is profoundly weird. It's yeah. like, you know, because borders are more serious than that if you live on an island. You can't just yeah. sort of, I mean, you can now to an extent with the Channel Tunnel, but it is it is different. But it, I suppose that brings me to the issue of, of contingency versus historical inevitability. You yeah. quote in your book, I think approvingly, Helen Thompson, who wrote that article yeah. about whether Brexit was essentially just a matter of time. It was something that was waiting to happen. Do you think yeah. it was always going to happen? Would you see a sense of inevitability about this? No, I, no, I don't really. I, I can see a sense of probability and you could say you know if something is sufficiently probable does that does that make it inevitable does it make it makes it you know it it may make it in practice almost inevitable but I mean part of the book is arguing against um, historical determinism okay I I talk about geography and I talk about different historical experiences which are obviously significant but I do argue and I do believe that we could easily have voted to remain in and that might have been the end of the story for a generation and that might have meant the end of the story for, for, for good 
and I and I argue that British attitudes towards the EU were not, if one goes back to 2016, very different from those in neighbouring countries. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's not as if differences of, you know, differences of history make for huge differences of attitude, which I don't think they really do. But what really counted was that we were, first of all, given a vote. You may remember, I don't know if you saw uh, Emmanuel Macron, the Andrew Marr show, I think yeah. in 2018, saying, um, well, if we had a vote, we might, we'd probably vote to leave. Well, yes, I think, you know, that could be the case for a number of European countries, had they been given a vote, had there been a free campaign. And of course, above all, had had they not been members of the Eurozone, then other countries also might have voted to leave. After all, most popular votes in, in EU history have been, in some senses, negative. So yes, we were, we left not, I think, because our history forced us to leave, but because we were we were told we got to vote and we could leave, and therefore we did. But there is a great danger in thinking that on one hand is Britain with its unique and special history, and on the other side are a lot of other people who who don't have a special and unique history. Whereas if you're if you're Italian or French or mm. Polish or Hungarian, you have in some ways a more dramatic history of fighting for <laughs> national independence than does Britain, or indeed you could say that of Ireland. And yet some of these countries are very determined to remain part of the EU. So history is not as simple as simply saying, you know, well, we have a we have a different attitude or we have a different history. We all have different histories and attitudes are very complex. And the, the reasons why people decide are often based on their sense of what is possible and what is in their own advantage. And had um, had had we been in the Eurozone, the dangers of leaving would have been so great. I'm quite mm. sure we would not have voted to leave. In fact, I think it can be stated as a practical certainty that we wouldn't have voted to leave. I mean, one of the things we've seen post-Brexit is an uptick in support for membership across the European Union. Yes. Do you think, do you think Brexit makes emulation or the fact of anyone else trying to leave more or less likely? Over the in the short term, certainly less. I think. I mean, I think there's, there probably wasn't much of a, of a, of a wasn't much likelihood anyway. Mm. Certainly not for members of the eurozone. You know, Italy in Italy and Greece dislike of the EU was far higher than it was in Britain. But the idea that this would lead to leaving is almost is almost non-existent. That's an exaggeration, but it's it's a, a very a minority view. Turmoil that we suffered and the 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 divisions it caused within the country and the the obvious economic disruption that, okay, was expected, but which has been reported very widely in Europe, as has our political turmoil, would Mm. certainly make anyone think twice about leaving. Indeed, it would make many people in this country, if the vote happened again, think twice about leaving if they knew what was going to come. So I think in the short term, it it certainly increased at least acquiescence in EU membership as being something that you can't really give up, not without huge costs. Whether that's changing or whether it will change is, is, of course, depends very much on what happens to the EU. Obviously, the vaccine question has not helped. And I'm sure that if you were to do polls now, you would see greater discontent with the EU. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you would want, you'd think it either possible or desirable to leave it. I mean, actually, interestingly, it's had a big impact here. I was looking at some polling yesterday that showed that I think around 50% of Remain supporters think that Brexit has helped make our vaccine rollout more effective. So it's it's having an impact on both sides. But on the economic impact itself, I mean, yes. you do talk about the economics in your book, and you do mm-hmm. sort of hint that you think that, I mean, certainly some of the more exaggerated aspects of Project Fear, like the short-term forecast that George Osborne propagated, rather misleadingly, it has to be said, 
said, uh, were overdone. Would you accept the fact that there will that there has been and there will continue to be a negative economic impact? Uh, yes, though a small one, I think. And when you say continuing, continuing for how long? I mean, in a sense, in, in the long run, this will be lost in other developments. Mm. You know, things like the growth of non-European markets will continue to take more of our exports, at least we hope so. And therefore, the, the, the effect of the loss of markets in Europe will tend to be um, lost in, in, in general changes. I mean, the long, the long term is, as you know, that a portion of our trade with the EU was in any case falling before Brexit, and is almost certainly going to fall faster as a consequence. If our trade with the rest of the world uh, grows, then you won't feel much of an effect of Brexit. You will lose markets in Europe, just as European producers will lose markets in the UK. And there will be some import substitution, no doubt. And then in 10 or 15 years time, very much depends on British government policies and also how the world economy develops. But you accept the fact that there is a relationship between geography and trade. Yes. Some on the Brexit side deny. Well, I, I suppose it depends which, I think that the link's getting smaller. I mean, I'm all, I'm a bit. You know, I'm not an economist, but um, I often think. Well, you know, in the in the we 19th, wouldn't have you on if you're an economist. <laughs> even in the 19th century, uh, we we imported a lot of our food from Argentina, Australia, the United States, and our biggest export market was was India. So even even in the days of of, of sailing ships and steamships. We did a lot, a lot of long distance trade. And there is, of course, a gravity model of trade, which is common sense. If you're near, you trade, you tend to trade mm. more. And that must, I suppose, apply particularly to goods trade and particularly in bulk goods. If you're selling coal or something or indeed potatoes, I'm sure it would have an effect. Uh, but if as more trade becomes digital, then you would think that logically the, um, the geographical proximity would be less important than, for example, linguistic uh, homogeneity or indeed legal and cultural similarity. I got the impression reading the book, and this might be wholly fallacious, you can tell me if I've got you completely wrong here, that you <laughs> almost became sort of more of a convinced Brexiter because of what happened after the referendum and attempts to stop Brexit than you had been before. I mean, you reported yeah. the book, a couple of conversations, one with Chris Bickerton, one with Kenneth Arrow. And, and the Kenneth Arrow conversation is interesting because you say it could have gone either way. If he'd really said it was going to be terrible, I might have voted remain. I got the impression it was on a knife edge, but you became more convinced subsequently. Is that is that? Yes, that's, uh, yes that is true. I, I mean, I'd always been sceptical about the EU's ambitions to become a federation without really a, a popular democratic um, foundation. The, mm. the famous democratic deficit. It always seemed to be very risky to be pushing ahead towards more and more accumulation of power without that kind of democratic consent. But I, I mean, I did think that we, you know, we were EU members, and that was going to continue. And that was just the fact of life. And um, so I wasn't involved in the campaign really before the uh, the referendum. And as you say, I had the, this conversation with Kenneth Arrow just before the vote. And he'd written, he'd signed a letter with a number of other distinguished economists that was published in the Times, saying he was against Brexit, you know, on the usual mm. economic grounds that it's barrier to trade and so on. And I, and I said to him, did he really think this was going to be a disaster? And he said, no. But if he'd said, yes, I'm afraid this is going to be catastrophe for the British economy, then I would have, I'd have voted to remain, as I would if I'd been, if I were Italian or Greek. And you reserve a lot of anger in the book for the parliamentary tactics that, as you put it, were you, which parliamentarians deployed to try and stop Brexit. Is it not wholly appropriate for parliamentarians to use anything that the rules allow to achieve what they will? Isn't that just inbuilt into our system? Well, I think they broke the rules rules. Of course, you could say, and people have said, even you know, distinguished people like, I was reading Lord Sumption's book the other day, mm. you know, member of the 
former member of the Supreme Court, he said, well, Parliament can do whatever it likes. Well, I don't really think that's true. You know, we, ha we haven't got a written constitution, as we all keep saying, but we do have constitutional conventions, which have been in place for a very long time, and which Parliament, it seems to me, or the House of Commons, doesn't have the right simply to change um, without any kind of consultation or popular approval. And it, it clearly did try to do that. There were attempts to take over the role of the executive in a way that has not been done since the 17th century. I mean, I said, okay, tragedy repeating as farce. We, 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 weren't, we weren't close to civil war. But nevertheless, a parliament does not have the right to govern. It has the right to make laws, and that's where its sovereignty lies. And I think it was very clearly breaking its own self-imposed rules. Okay, you could say, well, it can. Well, can it? It can change laws, certainly. But can it change the rules of its own of its own existence, as it were. You know, if, if Parliament decided to abolish elections, would that be okay? What well, seems to me it clearly wouldn't. But isn't and there I, a fine line, sorry to interrupt, but isn't yeah, there a no, fine no, line no. between holding the executive to account, constraining the executive and governing? And in a sense, couldn't you simply say that what Parliament was doing was constraining the executive in precisely the way it should do in a parliamentary system? Well, I think what it can do, what it has the right to do, is to legislate, to force the government to do things. Or, of course, it can vote the government out of office, but it cannot govern on behalf of the government, if you see what I mean. It can't take over the role of the executive. It can't, for example, it has no right to give orders to the civil service. It has no right to give orders yeah. to the armed forces and so on. And if it were to do that, that would clearly be a constitutional coup of some sort. Mm. So I think you, it is a fine line, as you say, and it's one on which constitutional lawyers disagree. But, you know, we're historians, not lawyers. And I think there is a higher reason for, for thinking that Parliament was behaving wrongly in that what it was doing, after all, was trying to overturn the results of a vote that it itself, it, it mm. itself had legislated for. I mean, I have to say, one of the conclusions I drew from that whole process was that actually procedurally, even if it wanted to, Parliament is incapable of governing because it just doesn't have the <laughs> mechanisms to yeah. do so, as we yes. as, as we found. Now, you you very caustic about the Supreme Court decision in Miller 1. And interestingly enough, you say it was a contentious ruling, arguably shaped by politics. I suppose the first question for you is, isn't it a bit easy simply to say, yeah, that's politics if it's a ruling you disagree with? And isn't that yeah. a little bit underhand? Uh, well, I think you have to look at the arguments. In, the, in, in Miller 1, there was a, a long dissenting view taken by one of the members of the court, which I th personally thought was convincing, at least in law, and which I know that a number of academic lawyers also thought was convincing that the Supreme Court had in fact ruled wrongly in terms of law. And, and the case of, of Miller too, which is so over prorogation, well, in a sense, it, it turned out not to matter very much. But again, the, the, the court overturned one of its own earlier judgments and also did what, well, okay, what the European Court of Justice tends to do, which is to rewrite the law in a way that it mm. thinks politically necessary. Well, that's not how our courts have gen generally run. They've tried to interpret the will of parliament, for example. They've, they've interpreted the law in a way that brings it up to date often. But what they haven't done is to um, is to actually say, well, what was the law up till today is no longer the law. And I think that's what they did. But didn't, in a, in a curious way, the Miller One decision, in a sense, reaffirm many of the Brexiter arguments, which is, I mean, the case they made was that because 
this particular treaty is one under which we have rights that are going to be conferred through domestic law because of the specific nature of EU law. It's a slightly different process. And in a sense, that was the problem, wasn't it? That you have this yeah. weird international organisation that could interfere with domestic law. But wasn't it making the Brexiters point for them in a way? I think, you know, I think there's a lot to, from a political point of view, there's quite a lot to be said for the Miller One judgment in my humble opinion as a non-lawyer, in the sense that you could say the court was defending the rights of people that are being given. Okay, you know, the, the legal argument that I've heard is to say, well, these rights were only conferred by our membership of an international organisation, which we're now leaving. Therefore, those rights logically no longer no longer exist. But okay, the, the court decided that Parliament would have to legislate. And, you know, you could say, well, having Parliament legislate is probably a good fallback position in the case mm. of contentious issues. And I think that that, it seems to me at least, that that is a more defensible position than, than was the case of the, of the Miller II case, yeah. which simply, I think, simply changed the law. I'm enjoying this so much. I've gone way too long for the first half. So we're just going to pause very briefly now for our incredibly popular commercial break and then come back. Please excuse the intrusion. I'm Paula Surridge, newly appointed Deputy Director of UK in a Changing Europe, and I wanted to encourage you to sign up to our weekly newsletter, which will point you to all the work our experts are doing across a wide range of topics. From free ports to meritocracy and populism, we've got the best social science research available and accessible to everyone. Welcome back. The other thing that I really enjoyed reading in the book, and it was a sort of I almost wonder whether you're going to write a follow-up book that picks up some of these themes. Was 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 what you had to say about foreign policy, about the threat posed by China, and you were saying the integrated review is a great opportunity to put some flesh on the bones of global Britain. So I can't I can't let you go away without asking. Do you think it did? Well, I'm I'm halfway through it. Okay, <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I mean, uh, okay, I, I, official documents of this kind tend to be. It's obviously written by a committee. You know, everybody. Mm wants to have their little bit of verbiage in there somewhere and it's not it's not you can't read it like a normal a treatise or you know piece of yeah. prose you think this is there's an awful lot of coded stuff in here and the only thing i thought was that some of the coded stuff was quite interesting um a, a lot of the coded stuff was basically saying well we're going to carry on doing everything that we do now and uh, you know we'd like we'd like to be able to um, be best friends of the americans best friends of the europeans also best friends of the indo-pacific democracies and also you know so yeah it would be great to do all these things and perhaps that's what a country like britain has to do you know you, you you're not going to limit your your foreign policy or your defense policy to a particular you know we're not switzerland and therefore perhaps you do but you know it, it's not exactly um something that you feel has said anything terribly new and exciting at least not the parts i've so far read okay what it does do of course we're and I think this is perhaps what you're getting at, it does make it very clear that we are going to be re-emphasizing the Indo-Pacific. But then the Germans have said that as well, and the French have said that. In fact, Macron said it in very trenchant terms. I don't know whether you read his speech. The Sydney Opera House. Uh, no, it was to his uh, his own ambassadors. Oh, that one as well, but he, he actually say. said it in... He said it in Australia as well. Australia as well. Well, he says, you know, he says that the 21st century is the 20th century was continental. The 21st century is maritime, and France is going to be Europe's principal maritime power, and we we are a Pacific power. So that's rather bolder than anything that we've said post Brexit. And you know, you might wonder in that case, um, what what's what's the effect of Brexit on our foreign policy? And that, that's still to be seen. I mean, one of the fascinating things in your book was uh, you talk about nostalgic obsessions with the Victorian oh, yeah. golden age that in a sense motivated those arguing that we should join the European community back in the 1970s. Yeah. What do you make of the fact that almost exactly those arguments are levelled to criticise Brexiters now? 
that they're hankering after a past that never really existed. And even if it did, it's now gone. I think in the latter case, it's probably a kind of coded way of saying you Brexiteers think that Britain is something special. You know, you think that we have a, a unique destiny. And we haven't. We're just the same as Belgium and Holland and and uh, and Sweden. So give up this idea that Britain should be, in some senses, independent because we can't be. And that is sort of translated into saying this is nostalgia for empire. I mean, I think the real nostalgia for empire was certainly that of the, M- the Macmillan government in the 1960s, in which joining the and, and the, the French. I think France was exactly the same. You're losing your empire and you need something else to replace it as a kind of pedestal for your position as a great power. And both for France and for Britain, European integration was hoped to be that. You could say, well, the French have done it far more consistently and effectively than than we did, because we could never really make up our minds about it. But um, I think that was where the the EU was seen as um, a supplement, having lost the empire. You know, there's a phrase I I, I do often quote, which was um, by one, I think it was by the um, the chief negotiator of our early approach to the EU. And he said, if we don't join the European, if we don't join the EEC, the common market, Britain will become nothing but a greater Sweden. I mean, I think being a greater Sweden is quite a nice thing to be, really. <laughs> but for, for Whitehall in those days, this was a terrible come down. You'd got to be the leader, you know, and, and being the leader of Europe, as they hoped, was the um, was was going to be replace the empire and also make Britain seem much more important in the ideas of the uh, the eyes of the Americans, which is always a very major reason for for Macmillan, certainly. So I think that was the the nostalgia, and I think the. In some ways, that insofar as that kind of argument persists on the Remainer side, it's still a kind of nostalgia. I mean, I'm not saying mm. that all Remainers think this, but some clearly do. You know, there's a lot of talk about how Britain, by leaving the EU, marginalises itself in the world, ceases to be a significant force. That is really exactly the logic that Macmillan used in the 1960s. And you conclude the book with the rather intriguing idea that 50, 100 years hence, Brexit might not be seen as all that important from a grand historical perspective. Could you could you flesh that out a little bit? Partly my hope, partly because I think people remember disasters, people remember wars, and they remember famines, they remember, dis- they don't really remember political changes. Um, and I think, and therefore, Brexit, I think, would only be remembered 50 or 100 years from now if it had been a real disaster. Rather like, you know, even, I don't think many people in Britain are really very conscious of the breakaway of Ireland, even, which was seen at the time as being an utter disaster. I, I bet lots of people don't don't know that Ireland was ever part of the United Kingdom. I mean, even something like that can slip out of the popular consciousness. And so I, I rather hope that Brexit will too. And yet, interestingly enough, you uh, this surprised me when I got to it, there's a chapter on the pandemic in the book. And is that because you think that actually that is the defining issue of our times, and it'll be that that seen as a historical break rather than Brexit. It wasn't quite that. I mean, I I, I just thought I'd got to, um, it's quite difficult, to, you know, if you're writing a book on contemporary matters, it's where very difficult to know where to stop. And I thought if I'd stopped before the COVID panic, it would seem like a great, there was something, a huge thing missing. And it was also partly because, as, as Angela Merkel said, this is a big test. And I thought it was going to be the big test for post-Brexit Britain. And of course, as she said, a, a big test for post-Brexit, the post-Brexit EU. Though I didn't know, of course, how it would, how it would work out. No, I think that's true. And I it concur with a lot of what you say about the EU and the potential problems that the pandemic might pose it. Just a broader question. I mean, you're a historian. I'm now a social scientist. I'm a failed historian. <laughs> uh, what can history tell us about the present? 
present. What? How? How do we learn from history? Can we learn from history? I think not in the way that many people think. You know, you you pick a an, a historical analogy and say it's just like the 1930s or it's just like the 1780s. I don't think that's very helpful, except as a form of rhetoric. We, we history is a great source of rhetorical flourishes and always has been. So I, I but I think what it really does is to explain to us how or to help us to understand how we and other people think. You know, I think attitudes to the EU are largely based on a certain view of history. So if you're if you're French, okay, I'm generalizing, but if you're French, you're likely to think of the history of France's relations with Germany and how the EU is therefore the way in which this fraught relationship can, can be solved. Hmm. If you're Irish, you might think, okay, this is the way we escape from the clutches of London and so on. You know, we all have an understanding of the past, which influences the way we think about the present. And therefore, to understand how we and other people think is, is always valuable. I mean, as, as a historian of France, I mean, one of, one of the interesting questions about Brexit is Brexit has polarised the United Kingdom. How polarised will it remain? And, you know, you've written about the Paris Commune, which is polarisation on speed, yeah. isn't it? And, and the other obvious parallel, I suppose, is Dreyfus. Dreyfus divided France for a long, long time around, yeah. along cultural lines. Do you think yes. there are similarities between that and Brexit? Well, I admit I hadn't thought of that before you, you mentioned it. But insofar as it revealed a difference of culture, yes, I suppose it did. I suppose it does. I suppose there, are, there is a similarity in that sense. But where, where the Dreyfus case, and now I'm sort of improvising, acted as a, as a catalyst is that it brought out very deep and bitter divisions that had existed for a long time, going back at least to the revolution, which had been very bloody after all. You know, differences of religion, differences of class. Re you know, I don't think Brexit, the Brexit division went anywhere near as deep as, as that. Um, you know, one of the things that I think we can be proud of is how, how little violence there was. You know, people got cross with each other and said rude things about each other. But there's, there was very few, there's very little violence and um, practically none, in fact. And I think that um, also some, it has been argued that the differences of attitude on most subjects between Remainers and Leavers was not very different. They, were, they divided on this matter, but mm -hmm. on other things like, you know, government policy, or public spending, the importance of equality, attitudes to race relations and so on. There was very little difference. You know, there are extremes on each side. I, can't, I think maybe David Goodhart calls the, um, the the hard authoritarians on one side and the global villagers on the other side. You know, about 5% at each end of the spectrum did differ hugely. But most people probably didn't differ an awful lot and, and had to make an, an assessment based on, you know, well, OK, as you said, things like George Osborne's warnings of economic disaster. And and I think once, clearly, when, once people had made the decision and voted, they tended to stick to it in a way that is actually rather interesting, but you as a social scientist are probably very familiar with. Mm. But, you know, it seems that people, once they've made a decision like this, they're very reluctant to change their minds and very reluctant to either be... Yeah be bullied out of or, or argued out of the decision that they've once made. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I could keep talking to you for ages, but I don't want to keep you for too long. But I actually want to end by talking about sort of our profession and universities, because yeah. of course one of the big divides that comes that becomes very visible in Brexit is the division between people who have university degrees and people who don't. Mm. And equally, universities have taken up a particular position in the minds of many as being a sort of liberal establishment. Uh, do you think this is a problem for universities? And what do you think universities could and should do about it? That they're seen as on yeah. one side of the argument? Yes, I think, okay, I think it's unhealthy that, you know, polling showed that 90 odd percent of academics took the same view on this. Mm -hmm. I would have thought it would be much healthier had there been a more even division. And I, But I think there are a number of elements to it. One is that the academic profession is in Britain is quite is quite international. And therefore, I think for many people, 
supporting Brexit is is kind of disavowing your 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 friends and colleagues from other countries. So you know, if Brexit's seen as a as a xenophobic, nativist, whatever insular mm-hmm. movement, then it's something you you wouldn't want to support. That was that was among the, the you know the rank and file of the academic proletariat like you and me. I mean, I think universities as institutions were much more, I suspect, governed by their a sense of um, their their corporate interest. In, in that sense, I think they behaved rather like large business organisations, and I think that was disappointing. I think if they'd uh, they should have kept quiet. I don't think it was a healthy thing for them to press people to take decisions on important national issues that were essentially based on their, their their bottom line in lots of ways. I mean, it was interesting as well, the contrast, because universities in Scotland made a decision to stay stum during the 2014 independence referendum. And hmm. it was a very, very different case with Universities UK and the referendum of 2016, which is yeah. interesting to say the least. Yes, that is interesting. Yes, I, I admit I hadn't realised that. And finally, I mean, you're you're in the public eye now. I notice you did a seminar about your book a couple of weeks ago, which involved half the government, as far as I can see, <laughs> David Frost. Are you enjoying this, I suppose, is the first question. But the second is, do you think academics should do more to communicate what their research tells them to a broader public? Uh, well, it would be strange if I said no, wouldn't it? It would um, indeed. You know, I, you know, I, this was all rather a surprise to me, and I think it's partly because not many academics have taken the same view. Of course, some have. You know, very distinguished ones have too. Vernon Bogdanor is one... David Goodhart, there are a number of people who have, but I suppose I've been perhaps willing to um, to stick my neck out a bit more, or at least to, to do more of this stuff. Uh, I'd be I'd be quite pleased when it's all finished. But should 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 academics do it more? I'm sure academics would very much like to do it if they were asked. Of course, podcasts like yours do seriously look at um, academic research and and try to get people to talk about things that they have serious interest in. But many. I mean, we all know that for a long time there have been sort of teledons and so on who um, mm-hmm. who were chosen perhaps more for their their physical attractions than for their necessarily their expertise on a particular subject. That's and, certainly why I get asked on. Yeah, of course you do. Yes, but <laughs> the pity that you can't be seen. <laughs> That's true. But you know, it becomes a kind of branch of the entertainment industry, a bit like MasterChef or something, in which. Uh, you know, you don't really have to cook terribly well, but you have to be able to present well, and that's that's fine. Except um, it isn't. It isn't. You know, it's not exactly Jean-Paul Sartre talking to the nation, is it? And I think um, there are a lot of academics who would like the opportunity to communicate more, but then how do you do it? Listen, Robert, this has been utterly fascinating, and I hope, as we said, we can get together and have a meal at some point and talk, particularly about French history in a bit more detail at some point. When yes, we'll a bit more about the Dreyfus affair. That would be lovely. Have a listen to that program and let me know what you think, and we'll have a conversation. But in the meantime, thank you so much for taking the time. And again, I really, really enjoyed this book. So thank you. Well, thank you, Adam. Thank you very much for asking me. Great pleasure.